0: Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Christmas, uh, that the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who was eternally God, chose because of his love and his grace and his mercy and his justice to become one of us. One of us, in a way that he took on a lot of the difficulties and finiteness that we, is, we have, yet was without sin. And Lord, he doesn't just represent us. He is our Savior. He is our King. He never left or never ceased to be who he was. And even now, we get to celebrate the awesomeness of who Christ is. I pray, Lord, as we go into the message and talk about love and loving each other and loving the world, that we would not lose sight, and this is hopefully a big part of the message, of the love that you have for us in Christ. We thank you for this time and give you glory. Amen. Will you uh, turn in your Bibles? We're going to begin by reading Luke 2, 1 through 7. Uh, It should be on the screen. Then I'm going to ask that you... Um, uh, stand with me as we read the scriptures. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a, de- a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all the wor- that all of the world should be registered. This was the first registration uh, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each one to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn He may be seated this Advent, this December Advent, traditionally Advent time we have been doing the Advent Conspiracy which is a, a movement among churches and Christians to intentionally cut against the, the grain of the status quo of our society and actually many Christians in the, particularly in the materialism of christmas has what it has become the themes for four weeks have been worship fully spend less give more and today we're going to talk about love all worship fully spend less give more love all and josh and i have decided though we leverage the advent conspiracy material and their themes and each sunday we don't preach their sermons we we were committed to developing our own sermons but well, we did decide this year to pick, leverage their text. They recommend some text. We said, okay, just to make it easier, we'll, we'll run with theirs. And that's what we've been doing. And that's what I'm sort of going to do today. Um, and, and as we, the text we just read was a text recommended for today, Love All. And in, according to the material, the guidelines they gave us, the theme for today in loving all from that text is this. Jesus was poor, so we should love the poor. Jesus was poor, so we should love the poor. I have a little trouble with that theme for two reasons. I don't have trouble with loving the poor. (laughs) I have trouble getting that theme from this text, to be honest with you. First of all, the logic doesn't work. Jesus was poor, so we should love the poor. That's like saying, Jesus wore sandals, so we should love people who wear sandals. And and we'll throw in flip-flops because they're close. Okay, It's like saying Jesus was a man, so we should love men, but apparently not women. The logic doesn't work. Just because Jesus was poor is not a motivator to love the poor. Secondly, and even more importantly, the text doesn't say that Jesus was poor. It's not there. And I think where they probably get that, I, I don't know who put this up there, I, where they probably get it was in verse 7, it says they laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. Well, it doesn't say that Joseph couldn't afford the inn. Now, he, he was not rich by any stretch of the imagination, but at the same time, the text does not give that poverty was the cause of that. The text actually indicates, doesn't say explicitly, but indicates the reason they were in the manger was it was crowded. They had to move, there was a census, they all had to show up. The small little town, all these people showed up, they ran out of room. Okay? So it wasn't because Jesus was poor another reason that text doesn't say that, because actually the text says the exact opposite. For example, we see in here that in in the early verses, that actually in the text just previously, we didn't read it, but in verse 1, an angel shows up to Mary and says, you know, Mary, this young woman who's not married, you're going to be pregnant, don't freak out, okay? Let me tell you why not to freak out. And this is why the angel told her this. He says, the holy, the holy Spirit who will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Son of God is a term for God being divine. Uh, God is not poor. by any, Again, any stretch of the imagination. The child born was the Son of God. The text goes on. It says that, that the, 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 uh, this baby, even though it was a baby born in very humble circumstances, had tremendous power working with it. How do we see that? Well, first of all, God arranged that the whole Roman Empire had a census. Augustus said, okay, everybody, go to your hometown to be counted. Something they didn't do a lot, but he arranged it. Why did that happen? God arranged it that this baby would be born in this place, in this time to fulfill the prophecies that the baby, the Messiah, would come from Bethlehem. Joseph was from Nazareth. He got him to Bethlehem, where the baby was born. That's a lot of power behind one child. Thirdly, the text tells us that the baby was the lineage of a king. The lineage of a king. Joseph also went up from Galilee. And from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and lineage of David. And if you were been here with us for this past year, and we went through the Old Testament, that just saying that he's from the lineage of David should bring back some memories, hopefully, of the, the whole, not the whole, a big part of David's life was the promise of the eternal kingship. God said, I will put a king on the throne for eternity, and he's going to come from your lineage, David. And now the text says, that's who this person is. This child is in the lineage of a king. Now, Jesus was born in very humble circumstances. That's true. But let's don't confuse humility with poverty. Humility is not poverty. In fact, if we thought about the text as a whole and what the New Testament tells us, part of the wonder of his birth isn't that he was born to a poor family. The wonder of the birth was it's God being born as a human. But God who is all powerful, all knowing, all everything, humbled himself and became like one of us. In fact, somebody who is eternally infinitely rich chooses to become very poor for us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8:9, Paul says this, "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that and this is he's describing that grace now. That through, though he was rich, Yet, for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the amazement of the Gospel. That's the wonder of Christmas, is that somebody infinitely, eternally rich would choose to express his love for people to give that up, to come down and be one of us, to take on our humanity. That is the essence of what the Christmas message is, that Jesus was rich and he became poor, so that in his poverty, we might become eternally rich. Another part of this is that we need to keep in mind the word poverty. When I thought about love all and and that Jesus was poor, we need to love the poor. There's a lot of kinds of poor, right? We think most often of economic poverty. And it is harmful, it is hurtful, it is crippling to have economic poverty. But there's other kinds of poverty, right? There's relational poverty. There's spiritual poverty. There's emotional poverty. And there's even physical poverty. People who have chronic illness have a degree of poverty in their physical bodies. All of these we should keep in mind when we think about loving other people and loving particularly the poor, those who have, are less... Uh, I don't want to say better off, but we have an opportunity to be merciful and share with. The theme for today is love all. So where am I going with this? I just, <laughs> I just said it didn't go there. <laughs> so we've got to make a, a little turn here, don't we? Okay. The text doesn't go there. It is in the Bible, but that text doesn't go there. And what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of look at what is the basis for our expressing love to those who are in need to be loved. It's love all, not just the poor, but those around us. But we can keep those kind of people in mind. Again, the different kinds of poverty. What does it mean for us to love those kind of people? Where does that love come from? What, What does it look like when we actually love that way? And that's what we're going to look at today. Where does this love come from? Well, first of all, I already forgot. How's that? Where does the love come from? I don't know. Look at your notes, Royce. Okay, this is God, three in one. This is us. Okay, got it? Okay. First of all, love is expected. Why is it expected? Why do I use the term expected? Well, we are created in the image of God. In Genesis 1:27 it says, "So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, him, male and female he created them." We are all of us, all of humanity, every person every, ever born on the earth was created, born in the image of God. Image means key aspects. It's, it's, it's very similar in many respects, not identical, we're not little gods, but there are many aspects of being that, that are characteristics of God that are unique to people that are not in other parts of creation, like being creative, having a sense of justice, are unique to people. And part of all people being created in the image of God is that need to be part of a community that lives in loving relationships. God, that's why I put the symbol, triune symbol. God lives three in one. God lives in eternal loving community. That's the essence of part of who he is. So when we're created in his image, that need, that belonging, that sense of love is part of us. To not have it is, is not as we have it because we are part of his in it. It's an innate need to be loved and to love. To, to be accepted, to, to be wanted, to be respected, to belong. Those are all things that God has within himself, and when we were created in his image, those needs, those parts of us become a part of who we are. Every single person ever born on earth. This is a universal principle for all people, in all places, in all times. And when sin entered the world, the image of God was distorted, but it wasn't removed. It's not lost. Even people who are uh, definitely struggling with their sins still have the image of God upon them. And if you're not a follower of Christ here, if you're not a Christian, this might this might this part of the message might resonate with you in the sense that if you know what that means to want to belong, to want to be accepted, to desire to be loved and to be significant and secure. But you also might want to struggle with why is it so hard? Why is it so hard for us? To get along and to accept each other and express that love and be in relationship. Why is it so hard? Well, the Bible tells us why. It's called sin. We use that word sin. It means just simply our, everybody's, everybody who ever lives, rebellion, with, with the exception of Christ, yes, I'll put that caveat, in. Uh, lives uh, in sin, is in, in unbelief and in um, rebellion against God, both as humanity and as individuals. And it has distorted that image. We know we want to love, but we're selfish in that. We want to be accepted, but we want to be accepted on our terms. And we don't want to have to necessarily put ourselves out to accept somebody else. And without God's intervention, we are unable and oftentimes unwilling to live in light of our real image, and to be rescued from, the, to receive the love he's given us. But there's an also reason it's expected. It's because it's, It's also commanded by God. Love is commanded by God. We see this in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. A, uh, a teacher of the law comes up and asks with what what the greatest commandment. And Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus didn't just make that off off the cuff. He was quoting from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses wrote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We know that as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them... and you sit in your house and when you walk along the way and when you lie down and when you get up and he goes on describing how they do the law what's the point why did Jesus quote that verse to say what's all the law about well first of all their first commandment is first and greatest because what it's calling us to is love's focus love's focus is first of all on God the one true God hero Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one love that God don't, don't mess around with other gods don't try to worship false gods don't try to love things that are not god because then you break the first commandment it's also love scope it's also love scope with your whole lives the little word in there that throws us off is all your mind all your heart all your soul that word all is in all it's repeated and it's there for a reason it doesn't mean just every possible every possible aspect of it it means we don't compartmentalize our lives we don't, we don't divide up things. We give an undivided love to God. We give a, all aspects. I can't love God, well, I love him on Sunday mornings, but on the job I don't have to love him. Or I can love him with my family, but with my neighbors I don't need to. No, it's undivided love pursuing God. And notice he says the second is like it. He doesn't say subordinate to it. He doesn't say it's less than. He says, it's like it. They go together. These two commandments are inseparable, Jesus says. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, this is probably a little disconcerting because if, if all the law and the prophets really boil down to these two commands, we could have spent the entire year last, this past year focusing on this, these verses. Because that's all it was love God with everything you've got. And by the way, love each other and love the people and humanity around you. Vertical love, horizontal love. That wraps it up. And the whole Bible says we don't get that down right. But that's the way God consigned us. It's not that we get to love, when we, and it's also not, when I get loving God down, then I can learn to love other people. Okay? It's not, it's not divided that way. These two commandments go together. In fact, a person shows his love for God by loving other people. That's how we know that we love God, is that we love other people. The two commandments go together. 1 John 4, 19-21. We love because he first loved us. Why do we love? Because he first, God, Jesus, first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the command to love is expectation. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That brings up a question. Who's our neighbor? Who who is that neighbor that we're supposed to love? Well, it's convenient that somebody in the Bible asks Jesus that question. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus quotes, somebody asks Jesus, about the great commandment he told them what it was and he said go ahead and do it and the guy, the guy we're told it was a lawyer said and he desired to justify himself said to Jesus well yeah I can, I'm supposed to love my neighbor but who is that by the way so Jesus told him a story a parable of the we know it as the Good Samaritan that a man was traveling on a journey and he was beaten and robbed and left, left for half dead a priest goes by sees him crosses the way on the other side and keeps going. A Levite does the same. He walks by, sees him. The texts both say they saw this man and they left him by the road to die. But then a Samaritan, a half-Jew, a rejection of the Jewish society, comes along on a journey. And he sees the man and the text says he had compassion on him. And he bound up his wounds and he treated his wounds. He put him on his own mule. In other words, he had a walk and he took him to an inn and he nursed the man and he's working on bringing him back to health and then when he had to continue on his journey the man was severely beaten enough that he couldn't recover so he said to the innkeeper here's the money to take care of him if there is more due when I pass back through I'll pay his debt and Jesus then asked the lawyer who then is a neighbor to the man who is hurt and the lawyer said the one who showed mercy, and Jesus says, well, go and do likewise. The lawyer wanted to know who was deserving of his loving attention. That's what the lawyer wanted to know. Who, who deserves my attention? And Jesus says, you're, you're, you're looking at it from the wrong place. You're looking at it, lawyer, from the wrong place. Look around you. Look around you there is plenty of need right in front of you. The text says, all of them saw the man, but only one acted. He says, the real question is, are you being a neighbor? The question isn't, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, the question is, who is the neighbor? And the answer is, the one who shows, who acts on, in a way that demonstrates mercy. By implication... The parable also says, don't be like a priest and a Levite. You look and you see, and you go on your merry way. Now, who is the other neighbor? Now, he says, be the neighbor, leave he tells the neighbor to, but the other neighbor in there, neighbor implies a relationship, the other neighbor in there is the man who was beaten, the man who was, was hurt and left for half dead, robbed, half dead. Just, I just want you to just pause for a second and think about this. We should always read the text for what the text says. The point of that text is people who are good neighbors show mercy to those in need, who need mercy. That's Jesus' point. Stop making excuses, that's what it means. But one of the ways to really sort of dig into a text is to stop and think of ourselves, putting ourselves in as one of the characters of the story. So, for example, if you hear the story of David and Goliath, right? Right? Who often are we told to be in the story of David and Goliath? David. Yeah, you can be David. Come on, beat those giants in your life. Okay, the reality is, we're not David, okay? Who are we in the story? We're the coward soldiers of Israel on the hillside. That's who we are. So sit in that perspective and look out there. This little scrawny kid is defending us? Really? Oh, wait, he did. Okay, in this parable, the main parable is Samaritan, is the main character. But what if we put ourselves in as the man who is beaten and robbed? What if we said, what would it be like to be him? Uh, Are you him? Have you ever felt like him? Beaten, robbed, left along the side of the road. People go by you in your life all the time, and they see you, but they keep going. I know some of you have been there. Some of you may be there, feel like you're there now. Yeah. And, then, and then someday you wake up, and you're in an inn. And you're healing, and you're cared for, and the finances are taken care of. And, and you, a person you never met and probably will never meet again saved your life and took care of you, became your benefactor. How might that impact your life? How might that impact your life to have somebody to care and you may never even know who that is? I think it would have a tremendous impact. Yes, being robbed and beaten and left for dead is a traumatic experience. But so is receiving mercy and generosity from other people it can be a very beneficial experience. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. Love is expected, but also... Love is experienced. Why do we love? Not just because it's expected, but because it's experienced. The first way it's experienced is that it's provided for us in Christ. It is by Christ, but in Christ. We read this, for example, and, and if you are not a Christian here, and the answer to your struggle, the first part is, yeah, why can't I'm creating the image of God? I get hurt. Why do I not feel better? This is part of that answer. This is part of that answer. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, he says, For while we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that little word, but, is a contrast. Yeah, yeah somebody who's good, we, we might die for them, but catch what God does. God shows, God demonstrates, God acts on his love. And you know what? While we were still sinners, not after we clean up our acts... Not after he didn't send Christ to die for sins and then he chose to love us because now we're good. No, when we were ungodly, when we were unrighteous, when we were his enemies and didn't even believe, he showed us his love for us by sending his son to die for us. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only does God remove the sin that brings us a relationship with him but he also makes us righteous. It's, the a simple analogy is we owe a billion dollars of debt to somebody to God and what he does is pay off that billion dollars. That's awesome. But God doesn't do that. He credits his righteousness so he deposited a positive billion dollars in our bank account. That's a little financial imagery of what it means to be ungodly Christ died for us, we have faith, and now we're righteous in his sight. It is, it's just an awesome swing of who we are and what we are about. And because God's love towards us, he not only removes the ungodliness, but he replaces it with his own righteousness. It doesn't cost Jesus only with his pain and penalty, but he shares with us all the benefits of who he is as a king and his righteousness. He shares that with us after the fact, too. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, big time. He says this, he describes who we are in sin and then changes where it changed. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it's not a good place to be, dead, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's how, that's how we live in a broken, tarnished image of God. Verse 4, but God, in contrast to all that, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, that's the source of his motivation, because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were unable to do anything about it, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, present tense, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, faith and this is not of your own doing, is the gift of God, Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You know what we're going to be doing for eternity? We're not going to be playing harps and flying around and whatever else you think we might be doing for heaven. This text tells us what we're going to be doing. For eternity, one of the things, for eternity, we're going to be going, we're going to find out things of God's grace is going to be more and more disclosed to us about our lives, about humanity, and we're going to go, wow, that is awesome. I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know that 6,000 years ago. I still didn't know. This is awesome. Why? Because God's grace and the wonder of that grace is so huge, we will spend eternity looking at different facets of it. That's how awesome it is. In Christ and through faith in Christ, we can can now approach God with both freedom and confidence, the scripture tells us in Ephesians. Our relationship between God and our Christians are now set right forever. Jesus has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. But it's also experienced a different way. It's experienced on our side because we receive it in Christ. We receive it in Christ. When we respond to the gospel, as Paul says in Ephesians, we respond by faith to the gospel message. We now have a big change. The big change is our identity change. Things about us change. We are now in Christ accepted. We are now secure. We now are now significant. We're new creations in Christ. His, our sin has been transferred to Christ and His righteousness is transferred to us. We are justified. We're redeemed. I mean, bought back. We have access to the God through the Holy Spirit. We are chosen by God. We, have, we can draw close to God. We have confidence that He does not hold us away. No matter what we do, we can get close to God. We're secure. We're, we're free from condemnation. We are delivered from the domain of darkness. We're citizens in heaven. We're established, anointed, sealed, and given His Spirit in our hearts to guarantee this. We have been bought with a price. We have eternal life. We're significant. We are told that we are His workmanship. Not our own. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are servants of Christ. We are family in Christ. We are the chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation we are members of the body of Christ we are called to be holy because we have a holy calling we are called to be a light of the world a city set on a hill I could go on and on and on (laughs) it goes on and on and on who we are in Christ what we receive the benefits we get isn't just forgiveness of sins by the way which is awesome but the benefits to us is even more than that in Christ because of who he is and what he has done for us, we have acceptance, we have approval, we have security, we have justification, we have worth, we have value, we have significance, we have purpose for life. We receive those things. We don't earn those things. We don't get those things. We don't pay them back. We're not indebted. We receive them in Christ. And, and why is this important? Well, there's a lot of reasons why it's important. But one of it is that that innate need we have to love and acceptance can be satisfied. It can be satisfied. We, we might not always feel like it. Let's be honest. We don't always feel like it. Okay? But it's a reality. It's not a feeling. It's a reality because it was provided by God in Christ on the cross and through faith we receive it in Christ, it's a done deal, whether we feel like it or not, whether we see it explicitly in our lives or not. Because it's been provided for him, we cannot lose it, it cannot be taken away from it, and other people's treatment of us does not diminish it in any way. It sets us free. This is the big part for the love all part here. Remember, that's the theme. It now sets us free to love and serve other people. Why? Because we're not dependent on them for their acceptance and their service and their uh, love for, to us. We already have that in Christ. I'm already loved and accepted and secure and significant in Christ. Therefore, I get to act out of that and share that with them. I don't have to wait for their response. I don't have to wait for their acceptance. And even if they reject me in being that way, that's okay. It does not diminish who I am in Christ at all. Love is also expressed. First of all, it's expressed... I put the Holy Spirit in parentheses. Is that blasphemy or anything like that? Sorry. Love is experienced... Excuse me. Love is expressed by God. Um, love is not simply was expressed... Uh, excuse me. Was experienced past tense. That's true. It was done 2,000 years ago. When I have faith in Christ, it becomes a reality for me. But then it's not just over there on paperwork, eternal paperwork there isn't a, a present expression of that in my life right now through the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us this in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's this part here, experience, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace that was in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance endurance produces character character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame why why can we go through all that because god's love has been poured out into our hearts through the holy spirit who has given who has been given to us The has-been is is a continuous action. He's constantly pouring his love into our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. As we wrestle with life, as we struggle, as we grow more mature, God keeps pumping more and more of his love into our hearts. We receive it. It's expressed to us. As we face those difficulties. we become more and more aware of God's love for us. One of the signs of maturity of any Christian is as they grow in the years, but also in their maturity, As they become aware, even as they face huge crises of their life, they become more keenly aware, more sensitive to the presence of God in their life, specifically God's love for them. Where does that come from? Intellectual assent? No, it comes from the Holy Spirit bringing it to their heart so they know that what they have believed is true and it's theirs for eternity. In Galatians 5, Paul says this, goes on a whole thing about wrestling with sin in our lives, and he says, Hey, you know, you got all those aspects of sin, but let me remind you of something, people. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. The fruit of the Spirit is love and those other things. This fruit is the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit is working in us to apply the truth of the gospel to our lives. And we grow in our, both our ability and our capacity in these areas to love, to express joy, peace, patience, kindness, those things. And isn't it interesting that in the fruit of the Spirit, those things listed, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, those things, they're all parts of who God is. God is, in the fruit of the Spirit, restoring His image in us he's not in the sense that we're still in his image but that distortion that we have because of sin now through the work of the holy spirit he's putting it back the way he originally designed it so that that would mark who we are that love joy peace patience that is god expressing his love to us now through the holy spirit but there's another part of it expressed and that's by us that's by us John 13, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Loving one another isn't new. What makes it new is just as I have loved you, now you are to love one another. In Ephesians, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, live in love, Take the steps of your life in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And First John 4, 19, we've already read that, but we love because he first loved us. We are commanded, as we saw earlier, to love. We are to express that love, and it's rooted in who, what Christ has done for us. We understand the gospel, and that compels us to love other people. As First John says, if we say we love God but cannot and do not love other people, we are liars we are deceived we must love other people I don't know if you guys have these guys on your playlist anybody here have DC Talk on your playlist? (laughs) oh oh, there are some hands but look at the generational difference in those hands okay (laughs) okay DC Talk uh, we're going back a little bit DC Talk when our kids were young yes much younger we had all the CDs all of the CDs played constantly. Yeah. No, I didn't. We had actually CDs back then. Okay, we were we were upscale. Okay. At least that's what I remember. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they were cassettes. Okay. 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 Enough nostalgia. Focus. Oh, you guys, you guys slip away real quick, don't you? Oh, I love cassettes. Okay. listen. stay with me here. Okay. Because I'm about to sing one of their songs. No. Okay, yeah, Yeah, Monica has this panic factor. Oh, no, no, not that, not with a microphone. They have a song called Love is a Verb. Love is a Verb, okay? And I'm going to try real hard to read the lyrics and not sing them, since it's hip-hop, okay? Okay, the first part of it I don't quite get, but we'll read it anyways, okay? It starts off with, take this mark for a ride. Boom, burn, bip, yay, pow, hey, ha, ha. Now, don't all great songs just start off that way. Okay, then I get into a couple lines about DC Talk, down to the DC Talk. I'll skip that stuff. It's a little disconcerting that they're singing a song about love and they slip themselves in there quite a bit. We'll forget that. Pulling out my big black book cause when I need a word to find that's where I look. So I move to the L's quick, fast, in a hurry, threw on my specs, thought my vision was blurry. I looked again... But to my dismay, it was in black and white with no room for gray. Yeah, see, a big V stood beyond my word, and yo, that's when it hit me. Love is a verb. How am I doing? Pretty good? (laughs) A little self-restraint here, okay? Words come easy, but don't mean much. When the words they're saying we can't put trust in, we're... we're we're talking about love in a different light. And if we all learned to love, it would be just right. Hey, tell, you, tell, you, tell me you haven't heard. Love is a serious word. Hey, I think it's time you learned. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you've heard. The word love, love is a verb. And then you get down with the DC talk a couple times. <laughs> thinking, thinking of a way to explain O... Because you know, when I'm flowing like a bottle of Drano, they were were really working on it here, weren't they? Simple and plain, L-O-V-E, ain't all the junk you see on TV. A good amen would be appropriate there. Uh, Put soaps on a rope because they ain't worth coping with. That's insightful. Um, It's a myth that there ain't no hope and love is enough if it's unconditionally given now you're living out the great commission. courses. Back in the day there was a man who stepped out of heaven and walked the land. He delivered to the people an eternal choice with a heart full of love and the truth in his voice. He gave up his life so that they may live. How much more love could the Son of God give? Here is the example that we ought to be matching because love is a word that it requires some action. Now I say that because love, in this respect, if it's expressed, is a verb. It's not, biblically, just a sentiment. It's not a feeling. It's not the mushing. It's not liking something a lot. Love, and we saw this in the, uh, in the overview of the Old Testament where God had, had his loving kindness, his covenantal love for Israel was called his steadfast love or his loving kindness is how he acted towards them even when they rebelled against him so when we talk about what does it look like to be expressed by us what what does that look like and I ran across I read the Gospel Coalition which is a website it's a great website and they have multiple blogs on it so I often go there and look through the blogs and I found this one on Justin Taylor's blog And it's it's called What is Love? And what he does is he quotes from Paul Tripp's book. Paul Tripp uh, is a well-known author and um, is a great guy. Um, Actually, I don't know the guy, so I don't know if he's a great guy. His material is really good. His books are good. And by the way, this is a little commercial break. Paul Tripp will be at the speaker at Men's Roundup in September for those of us who want to go see him. Anyways, our man camp next year, we're having Paul Tripp. How's that? Anyways, he wrote a book called, I love this title for the book, it's about marriage. What did you expect? That's the title of his book. What did you expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. In that book, on page 188, he defines love, the gospel source of love. What is love according to the gospel? And this is his definition of love. Love is willing sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. The love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation, or that the person being loved is deserving. Now he goes to extents to apply that to marriage, but that is an awesome definition of love any place, any time, out of Christ, it being expressed. And he breaks it down. Now what Justin Taylor does is take some of those pages and he just makes bullet points. I'm going to read some of those to you. Love is willing. Love is willing. God said, Jesus said, I'm sorry, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. The decisions, words, actions of love always grow in the soil of a willing heart. You cannot force a person to love. If you are forcing someone to love, and by the very nature of the act, you are demonstrating that that person doesn't, in fact, love. Love is willing. Love is willing self-sacrifice. There is no such thing as love without sacrifice. Love calls you beyond the borders of your own wants and needs and feelings. Love calls you to be willing to invest time, energy, money, resources, personal ability, and gifts for the good of another. Love calls you to lay down your life in ways that are concrete and specific. Love calls you to serve, to wait, to give, to suffer, to forgive, and to do all these things again and again. Love, again and again, calls you away from your instincts and your comfort. Love is willing to is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. Love always has the good of another in view. Love is motivated by the interests and needs of others. Love is excited at the prospect of alleviating burdens and meeting needs. Love feels poor when the loved one is poor. Love suffers when the loved one suffers. Love wants the best for the loved one and works to deliver it love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation the Bible says that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners if he had waited until we were able to reciprocate there would be no hope for us love love isn't you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours love isn't about placing hope uh, it, love isn't about placing people in our debt and waiting for them to pay off their debts. Love isn't a negotiation of mutual good. Love, real love does not demand reciprocation. It's real, because real love isn't motivated by the return on investment. Isn't that, isn't that huge? Real love does not demand reciprocation because real love isn't motivated by a return on investment. What are we going to get back? No, real love is motivated by the good that will result in the life of the person who is being loved. Love is willing to self-sacrifice for the good of another who does not require, that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Christ is willing to go to the cross and carry our sin precisely because there is nothing that we could ever do to earn, achieve, or even deserve God's love. If you are interested only in loving people who are deserving, the reality is that you are not motivated by love for them, but by the love for yourself. Love does its best work when the other person is undeserving. It is in these moments that love is most needed it is in those moments when love is protective and preventative it stays the course while refusing to quit and to get down and get dirty and give away things that that are anything but love that's what love is when it's expressed why do we love why do we share in love and celebrate love all at christmas well first of all because love is expected It's expected because we're created in the image of God and we are commanded to love by God. Love is experienced. It's experienced because it's provided for us in Christ and we receive it in Christ. Love is expressed. It's expressed by God in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit now and tomorrow and the day after and the week after. And love is to be expressed by us even sometimes when we don't feel like it. I want to close by having you think about a couple things. When I thought about the theme, love all, to be honest with you, I'm a little intimidated. I have trouble loving all. I don't have the capacity. I have trouble loving a few. To be honest and and though the theme is the point of love all is we are to love people different from us who are in need that we might not naturally have a relationship with that's the point of love all that is a good message and we can do that but sometimes some of us and I'm speaking for you in the room who maybe are like me when we think about all the needs around us all the things different people we might be aware of our family Friends, neighbors, co workers, classmates, strangers, we get overwhelmed. And we can get paralyzed and end up doing nothing. Not loving anybody in any real way that is told to express love. So, a recommendation is that you ask in your life, Who should I love? Who should I love? Remember, you rephrase it. You should ask, like the good, like the Jesus said, who is my neighbor? Now that might be literally the person living in the house next to you. I don't know. But who is my neighbor? How did Jesus say to identify the neighbor who needs your love? The person who needs mercy. They won't pay you back. They don't know. All those things that we want, we want a guarantee on the return on our investment in their life. That's not love. Think of people in your life again, the neighbors, the friends, the family, the coworkers, the classmates, the strangers who need mercy. And here's my recommendation. Don't worry about loving all. Love a few, but love them well. Love them well. Consider how you might be consistent with that love. How you might sustain that love over time whether or not they respond the way you think they should. Because that, that's the way Christ, God loves us in Christ. And the second thing I want you to think about is, you, you, like me, may struggle with other things. You might be struggling with the fact that you are created in the image of God and you want to be loved and accepted and secure and significant, but you don't feel it. You know there's something broken, and you don't know what that is. Or, or you may be aware of the command of God to love Him with all your heart, mind, and soul and, and love your neighbor as yourself, but you struggle with that. You're overwhelmed with that. You, you Your fear of illegalism or being crushed by that responsibility. Or maybe you're over here and you say, okay, I, I know I need to have the, God expressing His love in the neighbor, but I don't feel it. I, I know the Holy Spirit. So I'm supposed to see fruit of the Spirit in my life. I'm supposed to have His love part of my heart, but you know what? I'm overwhelmed with the pressures of life, the struggle with my sin day to day. I just don't feel it. Or maybe you're here saying, yeah, I, I know. I'm supposed to express love. That definition, Royce, was not very helpful, by the way. Just heaped the guilt on. Okay? Because that's not the way I love. What do I do? And if you're stuck in any of those ways, which I'm probably, if I'm guessing here, and, and we all share it here, Most of us are stuck someplace along the line. Here's my recommendation. These are parallel concepts. We're created in the image of God, and there's a void there that we need that's expected to be filled, and that is filled through the gospel by the Holy Spirit. We are are commanded to love God, love God, and love our neighbor and that is not supposed to be theoretical that is supposed to be actual day to day life to life things but either way if you struggle with that the answer to your struggle is here in the experience of the cross they meet at the gospel that Christ died for our sins if you struggle with being loved, being accepted being secure, being significant I encourage you to think about, read about, ask Josh and I about, your home community leaders about the gospel unpack that for yourself that's where the answer for that void is, whether it's on this side not knowing Christ or on that side walking with Christ if you know you're supposed to be loving but you struggle with that, you just can't get it out then the answer isn't to beat yourself up, it's not guilt it's not shame, if you feel guilt and shame it's not from the Holy Spirit doesn't use guilt and shame you then can repent from that and turn from that and turn again to the cross and say god show me your love so i know what love looks like empower me by the holy spirit so i can act in a way that represents that no matter what we always go back to the cross and that's why every week we celebrate communion we celebrate communion every week to remind ourselves as individuals as families as a church that the love of Christ is expressed to us in the cross. When we take communion today, I invite you, if you're a believer in Christ, whether you're part of Red Sea or not, if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to come up in a few minutes when we sing songs to take communion, break off the bread and have it in the wine or juice. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, I ask that you not take that, because it's for Christians. But if you're interested in knowing why, talk to Josh or I. If any of you want to respond to the truth of the gospel, say, yeah, I need either prayer Okay, okay. Doug and, and others will be here for you to pray with. Just come up here and stand in the front. Or if you want to talk to Josh and I. When you take communion, I want you to remind yourself of this. Of the, the love that was provided for you in Christ. And the love that you receive in Christ as you take communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so, so much for your love. We thank you so much, Lord, for your patience with us. Lord, forgive us for our, um, our nearsightedness, our sometimes uh, not being aware, not only of the needs around us, but of your constant flow of love towards us in Christ. Lord, as we respond now in song, in our gifts, and taking communion, I pray, Lord, that we would, right here, right now, All of us here experience that perception, that sensation of your love in our hearts poured out through the work of your Spirit. In your name, amen.